We began our new short sermon series, The Gospel According to the Psalms, last week. In order to help us to see how the Psalms show the person and work of Jesus Christ. But also, we want to rehearse again the high peaks of the Gospel together. Last week we looked at the Incarnation, the birth of Jesus. Physical birth for all of us here, every single one of you, physical birth was your beginning, your your conception and being in your mother's womb and, and coming out of there. That was your beginning. But for Christ... That was not the beginning. He was incarnate. You see, Jesus was eternally in heaven before before He ever even came to earth. And so what is the beginning for most people with our birth was not the beginning with Jesus. In the same way, what we look at this morning would be the end for all of us. Death. Psalm 22. The end of the Gospels. Death is going to be the end for all of us. Aside, of course from being in glory, but that's the end of our our physical being, at least until the eschaton, right? And so you die, your soul departs from your body to either heaven or to hell, and you don't come back to earth until the very, very end when we're with the Lord forever in the new heavens and the new earth. But for Jesus, His death was not the end. Amen? His death was not the end. He would take up His life and He would walk the earth again. Before his ascension. And so although we looked at last week the incarnation of Jesus and the beginning of the life of him on earth. Here on the on the first Advent, the first Sunday of Advent, our sermon will sound a little bit more like Good Friday. A little less Christmas and a little more Easter. You can't really separate Christmas from Good Friday anyway, can't you? Without the incarnation, you do not have Christ's death. These two events within the life of Christ, these two great high peaks of the gospel are inextricably linked to one another. One songwriter put it this way, Christmas has its cradle where a baby cried. Did the lantern's shadow show him crucified? Did he foresee darkly his life's willing loss? Christmas has its cradle and Easter has its cross. The eternal Son of God, He agreed with the Father to come to the earth. He came as a baby. He was laid in a manger. And so Christmas has its cradle. But then He grew into a man and He was hung upon a tree. Easter has its cross. And in the whole of the 150 Psalms, there is no psalm that speaks more directly to the death of our Lord than Psalm 22. In fact, The Prince of Preachers, Charles Spurgeon, said that Psalm 22 is beyond all others, the psalm of the cross. Psalm 22 is so messianic that it would almost seem like David is talking about nothing else than the Messiah. It's almost like he just takes on the, the, the hat of prophet instead of the hat of king. And he just lays it out there about this Messiah. That all just has to do with the Messiah and nothing really to do with himself. Taking on this role of the prophet. It is that explicit. Yet, we do believe in David's own life, in his context, there does seem to be some sort of agony that he is experiencing. There's an expression of incredible pain. I mean, think about it. For any one of you to begin a prayer as David begins in Psalm 22, verse 1, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Like there's 
obvious agony going on within David's soul. He feels lost. He feels alone. He feels deserted. He's forsaken. We aren't exactly sure what the historical context of this, why David is expressing such torment. It might be uh, those couple of times where Saul is chasing him around the countryside. He might be expressing agony and discomfort over that. Or he might be expressing it over his son Absalom, who ends up wanting to have a coup and to overthrow his father, David. But whatever he was experiencing that caused him to write these words under the inspiration of the Spirit, this psalm helps us to follow the Via Dolorosa, the way of grief, the way of sorrow, that path that makes a beeline for the cross of Christ, although it is a path that is very hard. This psalm easily breaks into two pieces. The first is in verses 1 to 21. We see David painfully praying to God. And second, we see David passionately praising God in verses 22 to 31. And those are on the back of your bulletin if you'd like to follow along. But look with me again at Psalm 22 in verse 1. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I find no rest. Have you ever been there before? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And all you hear after asking that question is the echo of your own words. That you feel like God is absent. Your prayer has not gone beyond the ceiling of the room. That He has left you. You're in your darkest moment in your life and God is gone. Andrew Peterson in his song, The Silence of God, says the following. And I think it's just so helpful. It's enough to drive a man crazy. It'll break a man's faith. It's enough to make him wonder if he's ever been sane when he's bleating for comfort from thy staff and thy rod. And the heaven's only answer is the silence of God. It'll shake a man's timbers when he loses his heart, when he has to remember what broke him apart. This yoke may be easy, but the burden is not when the crying fields are frozen by the silence of God. If a man has got to listen to the voices of the mob, who are reeling in the throes of all the happiness they've got. When they tell you all their troubles have been nailed up to that cross, then what about the times when even followers get lost? Because we all get lost sometimes. And the man of all sorrows, he never forgot what sorrow is carried by the hearts that he bought. So when the questions dissolve into the silence of God, the aching may remain, but the breaking does not. The aching may remain, but the breaking does not. In the holy, lonesome echo of the silence of God. Have you been there? All I want is comfort, right? God, like like a lamb, I am bleating for comfort from your staff and your rod. I'm just looking for comfort from my shepherd who said he came and died for me. So I'm looking around and I don't see him. Bleat, bleat, bleat. Where is he? And there's just silence. That our hearts are broken. I'm a follower of you, Jesus. And it's silence. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Silence. In those first two verses, David says, my God, a total of three times. 
So despite feeling forsaken, there is some kind of glimmer of hope because he's attaching this possessive pronoun to God, isn't he? This is his God. My God, why have you forsaken me? My God, why do you not answer me? But even though he's attaching this possessive pronoun to God and saying he's my God, it doesn't take away from the fact that David feels forsaken. It doesn't take away from the fact that there is no answer. That this is a, a painful prayer filled with anguish. And you can tell that David is wondering something that maybe has come into your mind already. Does this psalm display for us the hardened heart of the Old Testament God? Like finally we have our proof text. There is a difference between the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament. And here you see, he is, he's a mean God. He forsakes his children. He says that he enters into covenant with his children and then he breaks that and he leaves them and he forsakes them. Is this a proof text for that? Look at the different struggles the psalmist is expressing. In verses 1 and 2, he's feeling forsaken by God. But look at verses 14 to 16. He is experiencing physical agony. 14, I am poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. So he's, he's experiencing all of this bodily torment poured out, bones out of joint. His heart has melted. His strength is gone. Dry mouth. He's in the dust of death. And so he's forsaken, but yet he's also aching. And look at what verse 7 says. So compounded on all of this, his enemies are surrounding him. Verse 7, all who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. And look at what these people say. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him. For he delights in him. Right? So there David is, and all these people are mocking him. They're making mouths. They're wagging their heads. They're, they're looking at him like he's a pathetic, good for nothing. And look, yeah, you believe in this God. Yeah, look what he's doing. He's doing absolutely nothing for you, right? Look at verse 12. Many bulls encompass me. Strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths against me like a ravening and roaring lion. These, these strong bulls of Bashan, this area of Bashan was known for being in higher elevation. And so the grass was, was more lush there. And so naturally the animals that were eating on in Bashan, they were stronger. And David says, these are bulls like from Bashan. They're bigger. They're stronger. These people are like these great bulls. Verse 16 for dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. Lions and bulls and dogs. This is how David views his enemies. Lions, bulls and dogs have surrounded him, roaring, snarling. They're glaring at him, encircling him. And so his body is in, is in excruciating pain. His enemies are roaring at him. And God is silent. So what is the prescription? Do you grin and bear it? Just deal? Deal with it, David. Put your big boy pants on. Just handle it. No. Instead, what David does in the, the verses in the midst of all of this is he reminds himself of the truth. Don't miss this. 
Don't miss this. Look at verse 3. He has just confessed feeling forsaken by God. That God isn't answering him. But look at verse 3. Yet you are holy. Enthroned on the praises of Israel. And you our fathers trusted. They trusted. And you delivered him. To you they cried and were rescued. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. So within the Bible, the biblical authors, they did not underline words to say, look at this. This, this really means something. So look at this. They don't put like asterisks around the word or, or emphasize it in any way. So how do they emphasize what they want to get across? They repeat their words, right? And in those verses, what does it say? They trusted. They trusted. They trusted. So what do you think David wants us to grab from that? That they trusted, right? So they're trusting. Christian, you cannot allow the way that you feel or think in a moment of struggle to dictate what is true. What you feel and what you think is not necessarily what is true. This doesn't take away from the pain that you're experiencing, right? This this doesn't take away from the pain that God has sovereignly placed in your life. But it at least clears your mind and refocuses you on the truth. So notice what David does here. He reminds himself, he's preaching to himself the truth about God in the midst of the way he feels, right? In the midst of what he is experiencing. And so I feel forsaken right now from God. And so what am I going to remind myself of? What is true? Well, what is true about God in verse 3 is that He is holy. What is true about God is that He is enthroned on the praises of Israel. He rests He is sovereign over Israel, enthroned on praises. What is true about my God, even though I feel forsaken, is that our fathers trusted in God and God delivered them. What is true about God is that when our fathers cried, God rescued them. What is true about God is that He was trustworthy and our fathers were not put to shame. I like what Robert Godfrey said. A recurring spiritual remedy in the Psalms is to fill the mind with memories of God's past faithfulness to assure us of His present faithfulness. And so God, right now, I feel forsaken and that You're nowhere to be found, but You are holy. God, right now, You don't seem to be answering me, but You are sovereignly enthroned above. God, my enemies are surrounding me like lions and dogs and bulls. Oh my! But You have been faithful in the past. And you will be faithful right now in the present and in the future. So despite what I feel right now, and I'm legitimately experiencing right now, what is true about my God? Cancer, miscarriage, collisions, poverty, hunger, betrayal. God, I know how I feel. And I know what I'm experiencing right now from your hand. But what I need the most is to be reminded of who you are and what you have done. And brothers and sisters, when you get that and you do that, you will again find the fuel and sustenance you need in order to bear what feels like as the silence of God. Now this psalm does liven up a little bit. We don't spend as much time, we won't spend as much time here, but you can see that things begin to change for David beginning in verse 22. Look at there. He says, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise Him. 
All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him and stand in awe of him. All you offspring of Israel. Notice, for he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. And he has not hidden his face from him. But he has heard when he cried to him. And so, although I felt alone and broken and forsaken, he has heard me. His face is not hidden from me. Look at verse 26. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May the hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nations shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord. And he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship. Before him shall bow all who go down to the dust. Even the one who could not keep himself alive. Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn, that he has done it. So you notice this is a whole turn of events, isn't it? David has felt forsaken. All of these things were swirling around him. He acknowledges that God is holy. He acknowledges that God is sovereign and above all things. And that what ends up happening in these verses is everything switches to, I'm going to praise the Lord now. That the congregation is going to praise the Lord. And not just me, and not just the congregation, but to the ends of the earth, the praises of God is going to be lifted up. Right? You see this progression. But then verse 31 ends on an interesting note. So verse 31, It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim His righteousness. To a people yet unborn. So this is going to go on for generations, right? They're not even born yet. They're going to hear about this God. And how does it end? That He has done it. That He has done what? That He has done what? Isn't there such a great finality in those words at the end of that chapter? He has done it. There's certitude, completeness, decisiveness. He has done it. Well, what has He done? Being a messianic psalm, being a psalm clearly pointing to Jesus, many commentators, and I agree with them, see a connection between He has done it and the final words of Jesus on the cross, it is finished. He has done it. It is finished. Turn with me to Matthew 27. Like last week, I want to show you the psalm, but then I want to show you over in the New Testament how this is used by the authors. Matthew 27. So if we're going to see this psalm as we should, not just a psalm about David or ourselves, but pointing beyond itself, we need to look at Matthew. Because it is there where we see such a clear application of this psalm. If you remember, we spent a long time in the book of Matthew together a couple of years ago. And if you remember, Matthew 27 is where our Lord stands before Pontius Pilate They scream for Jesus to be crucified and Pilate hands Jesus over to the Jews and they crucify him, which, by the way, they had found a ring that belonged to Pilate about 50 years ago. Uh, They found this ring. They didn't know who it belonged to. And I saw an article this week that actually said that this ring that they had found 50 years ago belonged to Pilate. And it was his ring that he would have sealed things with. And so it's pretty interesting. These are historical figures. They lived They were real. The Bible attests to these things. So Jesus interacts with Pilate. Pilate hands him over and they crucify him. Look beginning of verse 32. 
And as they went out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. They compelled this man to carry his cross. And when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull, they offered him wine to drink, mixed with gall. But when he tasted it, he would not drink it. And when they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. Then they sat down and kept watch over him there. And over his head, they put the charge against him, which read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. So although the chief priests with the scribes and elders mocked him, saying, He saved others, himself he cannot save. He is the King of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now, if he desires him. For he said, I am the Son of God. And the robbers who who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. Now from the sixth hour there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, This man is calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine and put it on the reed and gave it to him to drink. But the other said, Wait! Let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and he yielded up his spirit. So he clearly says these words, Eli, Eli. You can, you can hear why they would have thought that Jesus was talking about Elijah. You can imagine Christ and all the torment that he had undergone and how he probably was having trouble with speech and slurring his speech and getting these words out. The biblical authors knew what he was saying, but others around were thinking, is he calling Elijah? What's going on here? And Jesus cries out and he yields up his spirit. And within these verses, there were at least four direct quotations from Psalm 22. And even more allusions to it. And so in verse 35, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. Well, what did it say in Psalm 22:18? They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. In verse 39, those who passed by wagged their heads. In Psalm 22, verse 7, all who see me mock me, they make mouths at me, they wag their heads. In verse 43, he trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I am the son of God. Well, Psalm 22, verse 8, he trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him for he delights in him. And then obviously the most clear in verse 46 and about the ninth hour, Jesus cries out, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which means my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Which is how Psalm 22 begins. You have allusions beyond the quotations though. How about Psalm 22 and verse 16? Think of the end of this verse in Psalm 22 in light of Jesus. They have pierced my hands and feet. This was written a thousand years before Jesus ever came. Do you see how explicit this is? 
written that long before the Christ ever came. Yet these words are what bubble up out of Jesus while he is on the cross. And they are the words of David in Psalm 22. This is remarkable that in Jesus' deepest, darkest moment on earth, what comes out of him is the word of God. And so when you cut Jesus, Bible comes out. And for the rest of our time together, I just want to, I just want to target this one of these last sayings of Jesus on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We understand how David could feel that way from a human perspective. But we cannot understand how God would feel that from God's perspective, can we? If we have an accurate theology of Christ, that he was God in the flesh, and we recognize him as existing before the foundations of the world in glory with the Father and the Spirit. And we believe that all things were created by Him and for Him. And all in, and in, in Him all things consist. And within the Godhead for all of eternity that there was perfect harmony within the three persons of the Trinity. Never a fracture of relationship. Never a disagreement. Never a sarcastic glance. Never any kind of passive aggression among the Trinity. And so... How can we know now have Christ on the cross, this moment of greatest pain and suffering, the ground below him is just absorbing the blood that's spilling out of this body that God had prepared for him, and he's hanging there completely naked. His enemies are surrounding him like the strong bulls of Bashan. Forsaken. Why? In those moments... When Jesus was on the cross, he was not just experiencing the pain that came with being crucified. He was not just experiencing the pain that the two thieves on either side of him were experiencing. That was real. That was painful. Excruciating. He felt the nails driven into his hands and feet. He felt the crown of thorns being pressed into his brow. He felt the deep lacerations on his back from being whipped. Jesus was quite literally filleted. But he was also experiencing a total other level of pain that you and I could never imagine. In that, the death of Christ was what theologians have long called the penal substitutionary Atonement. Penal in that he took our penalty. And substitutionary in that he was our substitute. He was the ram in the thicket, Genesis 22, Abraham and Isaac. I'm going to sacrifice Isaac. No, stop. There's a ram over here. Boom. I'm going to sacrifice Brandon. No, wait. There's a ram over here. There's Jesus over here. We'll sacrifice him instead. He is the substitute. And when Jesus hung on the cross, God laid our sin upon him. So instead of the penalty that was due to you and me being laid on us and sacrificed for it and experiencing God's wrath for it, Jesus is laid on the cross. And God lays our sin on him. Every ugly word that you have said to your spouse It's on Jesus. Every blow up at your kids, every moment of laziness, every blasphemy, our thievery, our physical and our heart adultery, every disobedience and disrespect to our parents, every bit of hate, all of it, all of it 
laid upon Jesus. And the wrath of God that was due to you and due to me, a punishment that we were indebted to bear for all of eternity in hell, was laid on the broad shoulders of Jesus. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians 5, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that we could become the righteousness of God in him. So as to the why, why was Jesus forsaken? Well, he was forsaken because even though he knew absolutely no sin, he never had anything to do with sin, God made Jesus to be sin for us. Isaiah 53 says that the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all, all of us. He, he was made a curse, for cursed is everyone who hangs upon the tree, Paul says. And so as he hangs upon the cross, he's made to be sin, he is a curse, and the Father can't look at him. He cannot look at him. Why? Because your sin and my sin made it unbearable to look at Jesus. Hebrews 1.13, or excuse me, Habakkuk 1.13 says, You who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong. Friends, what is at stake in believing all of this? And why does all of this even matter? Consider, it was your sin and my sin that made it so that the Father would forsake the Son. Can we stop downplaying our sin? Can we please stop downplaying our sin? Can we please stop playing and thinking that to cut our spouse with some words is all right? Can we please stop thinking that taking the Lord's name in vain is all right? Can we please stop thinking that getting drunk every now and then is all right? Can we stop thinking that looking at pornography every now and again is okay? It is not. And it is those kinds of sins, the ones that we do without thinking, the ones that we do with thinking, that made God forsake His Son and made Jesus unbearable to look at. The Apostle Paul says that the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. He was that preaching Christ crucified is a stumbling block to the Jews and its foolishness to the Gentiles. But to those who are called, so to you, to Christians, we see the wisdom of God in the cross. We see that the foolishness of God, if there were such a thing, is far above any kind of wisdom of any man. And so if you're here today and you're just kind of thinking, man, this preacher guy is crazy to preach this cross thing. Like, that's ridiculous. What an odd, strange, child abusive type notion to think that the father killed his son on the cross for us. That's ridiculous to think that. Well, Paul anticipates that. That the preaching of the cross would be foolishness. So if you're here today and you're thinking, wow, this is kind of crazy. A dead Jewish man on the cross. That means something for me 2,000 years after the fact? Well, the Bible does say that the world would consider this to be foolish. 
But friend, it is far better to be a fool for Jesus than to be counted wise in the world. Far better to trust and believe and cling to the cross of Jesus than to trust and cling and believe in the philosophies of our day. Jesus Christ, in his act of obedience, he lived a perfect life. The same God-man, in his passive obedience, was hung upon the cross and he was forsaken. And it was because he was forsaken that we could be truly atoned for. That the sin that was laid on him could be taken care of and forgiven. The late R.C. Sproul said, Some have interpreted those words to indicate, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Some have interpreted those words to indicate that Christ felt forsaken since he was in the midst of the dark night of the soul he experienced while making his atonement at Calvary, but that he was not truly abandoned by the Father. However, if Christ was not truly forsaken by his Father during his execution, then no atonement occurred, because forsakenness was the penalty of sin that God established in the Old Covenant. Therefore, Christ had to receive the full measure of penalty on the cross. To die and to go to hell is to be completely forsaken by God. And Jesus was forsaken for us on the cross. If Jesus was really going to be our penal substitutionary atonement, our substitute taking our penalty, then he needed to bear all that the rebels would have to bear. He would have to be forsaken by the Father, even as those who are in hell now are experiencing a bit of what Christ felt on the cross in being forsaken. So what does this mean for us? Does any of this have any practical import for you right now? If we believe that Jesus did all of this, that he bore our sin, he drank God's wrath for us, he took the penalty, he was our substitute, all of this, then, then, then it has everything to not only do with your eternal life, these beautiful pieces of the gospel don't just have to do with trusting in those, and then you get heaven, but it has to do with right now. Like these great truths influence the way you live right now. But when you die and you stand before God, and I don't know how this conversation plays out, hypothetically speaking, how does this all work between you and God in this conversation, or Peter at the gates, as the comics often have it. But why should I let you into heaven? What's your answer? I went to church, I helped old ladies across the street, I gave to the poor. I adopted orphans. I helped widows. Depart from me. I never knew you. The only response to the question that you have got to give to God is, God, here I stand in righteous robes, not earned by myself, but given to me by your Son, who was forsaken on the cross by you, atoned for by his grace, and I am thus saved And bound to you eternally. That's it. That's it. You can only plead Christ when you stand before God. You cannot plead anything else. You cannot plead good works. You can only plead Jesus. So if you're preparing any other answer for God. Other than clinging to Christ before him. Then you will hear nothing. But depart from me. I never knew you. My prayer this morning is that, Christian, you will, you will cling to Christ not only then, but in all of your choices and actions now. You will cling to Him to gaze upon the cross, 
to deeply consider that Christ was forsaken by his Father for you, as foretold in Psalm 22. That your sin upon him caused his forsakenness. And to step back and marvel and say, Jesus did that for me. A modern hymn writer recently penned these words. I cling to Christ and marvel at the cost. Jesus forsaken, God estranged from God. Bought by such love, my life is not my own. My praise, my all, shall be for Christ alone. Marvel with me, brothers and sisters. Marvel at the cost that Jesus was forsaken for you. That you have been bought by such love that your life is not even your own. That you have been purchased from the slave market of sin not to live for yourself, but to live for the one who was forsaken for you. And so the only response that we can give is everything. Our life, our praise, our all for Christ alone. Let's pray.